yesterday, I was just praying, and it was one of these moments of like, you know, the week was difficult, and I was speaking today, and I'm just praying about the message and stuff and praying. But honestly, I'm just kind of fighting for, for a little bit of joy. I'm like, all right, God, like, nothing majorly bad happened. My family's on the mend. It was just, there were so many activities and so much stuff going on. There was just stress, and I'm, but I'm still fighting just my own frustration because I get angry and I get frustrated when things are really busy and I just tr- driving all over the place. I don't know what happened. But somewhere in my 30s, it hit where, like, being in the car is just like being trapped in the pit of hell. And I'm like, I'm driving again to pick up a child and take them somewhere else. Like, this is what is wrong with my life? What has happened here? And it's like, oh, you wanted this. You had four children. That's true. We did want it, but I didn't know what it meant. But I was just fighting yesterday uh, for this. And I was just praying and just thinking through stuff. And then I just had this thought. And I thought, you know what? Gratitude equals joy. And so the reason that I am so frustrated and I'm not full of joy is I'm not really grateful for the things I have in my life. I'm just thinking about all the stuff that's gone on in the week and the this at work and that. And I was just, I just began to thank God. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take a moment and express my gratitude. I was just like, God, I thank you for this. I thank you for our house. I thank you for the, I thank you that our kids, you know, are healthy right now. And then one of them got sick, but whatever. Like, I thank you, uh, one of them's homesick this morning, but I was just thanking God for all the things that he's done for us. And just as I begin to express my gratitude, that's when I begin to feel the joy of the Lord. See, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Like we're not just going to be happy all the time, but we can experience a joy. We're supposed to be full of joy. It's one of the fruits of the spirit. For those of us, you know, who are believers, we're supposed to express this and, and ex- experience this joy. And I thought, man, it really just comes from gratitude. And I re- even though I reminded myself in that moment, I thought, I need to institute this into my life more. I've kind of gotten away from just expressing my gratitude. And that's where that joy comes. And so this morning, as we dive into the message, today's message is called Flesh and Blood. And we're going to, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell some stories. We're going to read some scripture. And we're going to talk about some theology today, some, some real, uh, you know, biblical theology of why Jesus came in the flesh and blood. And then at the end of today's message, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to remember the flesh and blood of Jesus as we take communion. But all throughout today's talk, especially when we get into kind of maybe the theological portions of this, I want to just set the tone for us that this morning, it's really, uh, today is, is learning why we can be grateful for what Jesus did for us. A lot of this is just trying to understand what Jesus went through and what Jesus came from so that we could be free. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 today. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones, you can open them up there. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture. Uh, Pastor Mike last week, if you were here, uh, really gave us a ton of scripture. And it was, it was wonderful. Like, thank you, Pastor Mike, last week. But we, you know, Pastor Mike and I were talking before the service last week. And I think sometimes, you know, just because of, uh, you know, we want to, as speakers, we want to make sure we have everyone's attention and we don't bore people that we we've kind of gotten away over the last 20, 30 years from reading large portions of scripture and messages. And we just do like little tidbits. Well, today we're not going to do that. We're going to read some scripture. Okay. Uh, it's going to be on the screen so you can read it with me, but we're going to really kind of dive into Hebrews chapter two, uh, because sometimes it's really important for us to understand the theology of why Jesus did what he did and why it had to happen the way it happened. All right. So Hebrews chapter two, we're going to start in verse one. The writer of Hebrews says, so we must listen carefully, very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. 
So understand the context of the book of Hebrews, okay? The book of Hebrews was written to the... There you go, to Hebrews. Yeah, it's right in the name. It's in the name of the book. That was, that was low-hanging fruit. You should have got that one, okay? The book of Hebrews was written to the... There you go, all right. So it was written to the Hebrew people. And in chapter 1, uh, the, the writer here really talks about how everything that's gone on in all of our history, as the, you know, the Israelite Hebrew history, all of it was pointing to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, we need to really understand, it's all about Jesus. The whole thing was about Jesus. Scripture, it's all about Jesus. The story of humanity, it's all about Jesus. And he's writing to the Hebrew people saying, listen, you're following in the same pattern that our people have fallen into for generation upon generation, which is they hear the truth, they follow it for a while, then they go back to doing what they used to do. That's what the whole, that's the whole, that's the whole Old Testament. All right, I'll just give you, there, if, you don't, have you, if you haven't read the Old Testament, that's the story. God shows up and is like, hey, you should do this. They're like, great, we'll do it. And then they're like, ah, maybe not anymore. And so then they start sinning. Then God's like, okay, well, now you're going to be punished for doing that. And now he's going to send someone else. He's going to say, this is what you're supposed to do. They're like, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. Let's do that again. And they're like, ah, but not anymore. And they go back to, into their sinful ways. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, guys, listen, you're doing the same thing that our people have done for generation upon generation upon generation. You heard the truth about Jesus, but you're sliding back into your old ways that are not right. So he writes to them and says, it's all about Jesus. And then chapter two, he says, we have to listen very carefully to the truth we have heard. So the first part of this, just kind of breaking down this first verse. We have to listen very carefully. Uh, one of our children is, is very loquacious. Uh, he likes to talk. And Griffin, he's the youngest in the family. He's the fourth. And, uh, you know, you might call him the baby of the family. And then if you hung out with him for a while, you might be reinforced. He's the baby of the family. But he just likes to talk. And I take him to school every morning. And I don't wake up great a lot. Mornings aren't when, you know, Nathan's at his best. All right. Anybody else? You know, like we're night people. Like about 10 o'clock, my brain's like, let's do this. Let's go do some cool stuff. And then at 6 a.m., it's like, why in the world are we awake right now? Like, what is going on? So Griffin likes to talk. And each morning, I've had at least two cups of coffee before I get in the car and take him to school so I can be prepared for him. But earlier this week, uh, I just wasn't mentally there, you know. And he was talking, and he was just, he was really, he was really talking. Uh, and I'm like, dude, there's music on. What song do you want to listen to? And that's just like dad's trick of like, is there any song that will get you to listen to the song and not talk? Uh, so the song's playing, and, and he's just talking. But I'm like, wanting to be a good dad. So, so I'm there, and I'm just responding. I'm like, uh-huh, oh, yeah, like, oh, cool. And at one point, I was like, oh, wow. And he goes, so what do you think, Dad? And I was like, oh, I think he asked me a question. Uh, and I was like, uh, what, what did you say? And he goes, Dad, did you not hear me? And I was like, uh, I mean, I heard you, but I wasn't really listening to you. And I have no idea what you said. Can you please repeat it? And then he repeated it. And I answered his very dumb question uh, that I'd already answered five times already in the car. But just reinforce, yes, your baseball game is tonight. Well, I don't know why you're asking me again, but yes. See, the thing is, is sometimes we, we can hear, but we're not really listening. Right? We can come here. We can be here on Sunday morning. We can listen to Pastor Gabriel, Pastor Mike. We, we can listen to them preach, and, and we can hear the words, but not really listen. We can read Scripture, and we can hear it, but not really listen. 
Listening means applying what we're hearing to our lives. It means taking, taking it to heart, letting it grab hold and, and take root in us. And he's saying, listen, there's this truth about Jesus that you've heard. We have to continually listen carefully so that we don't drift away. See, the thing is, is drifting isn't something that is immediate. It's gradual. I love the word picture of that, drifting. It's not immediate, it's gradual. Growing up, uh, we had a boat a lot. My, well, my, we didn't have a boat. My dad had a boat. That was very clear. It wasn't our boat. It was his boat. But my dad had a boat, and we went out all the time, you know, fishing and tubing and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up, and so the boats that we had didn't always work, you know? They were, it was like probably 50-50. It's like, it's like, yeah, we're going to go to the lake. And like, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance we're going to the lake, 50-50 chance we're loading the boat back up and just going home. Uh, there's one time, like, my dad backs the boat down, and I'm sitting in the boat, and I'm sitting at the dock, you know, just waiting for him to come back. He comes back. We try to fire it up. Boat doesn't start. So then my dad, who is not mechanical whatsoever, my dad is wonderful. Uh, a lot of you guys even heard him last year at the core team dinner, I think is what he spoke at. Like, he's a great speaker. He's got a lot of great traits, mechanical Things are not his deal, like just not his deal. So whenever he opens the motor, it's like, why are you opening the motor? You don't know what's going on. But he gets it open, and he's like, maybe it's the spark plug. I'm like, sure, that's, that could be it. We've tried that every Saturday for the last year, and it never works, but sure. So he gets in there, and after, I don't know, an hour or so, boat's not going anywhere. It's not firing up. So we're going back home. So then he just says, you know, hey, Nathan, stay here. Hold on to the dock. I'm not going to tie it on. So that when I back down the trailer, I don't have to come back and untie it. Just hold on to the dock, and I'll back the trailer down, and then we'll both, you know, we'll, we'll push it onto the trailer. And I'm like, sure. You know, so he goes, and I'm at this point bored out of my mind. We have been on the lake, and we've done nothing fun. We've just, I've just watched my dad try to get the boat working. So I think, well, the boat hasn't gone anywhere. It's not that big a deal, and I just let go of the dock. And I'm doing whatever else I'm doing at that time as a, you know, 11-year-old boy who's bored out of his mind without a smartphone because those didn't exist back then, you know. And then all of a sudden, I don't really pay attention. My dad backs down the trailer, and then he's like, Nathan. And I'm like, why is he yelling? And I look, and I am nowhere near the dock. And the boat has drifted way out into the middle of the lake, and the motor doesn't work, and I'm by myself. So we got it figured out. But. The thing is, I didn't realize if I'd have known letting go would have sent me into the middle of the lake, right? I I wouldn't have done that because drifting is gradual. It's gradual. The the wind just kind of blows. The waves just kind of take you. And then all of a sudden, you're where you don't want to be. And that's what the word picture he's saying here is like, we got to listen carefully to the truth that we've heard so that we don't drift away. Because what's going to happen is if we hear the truth one time and then we don't we're not continually reminded of it. If we don't stay connected to it, life happens and life. When it happens, it begins to drive these small little wedges, these small moments of drifting and begin to take place. And before we realize it, we're out in the middle of the lake and we're nowhere near the safety of shore. We're nowhere near Jesus. We're nowhere near that relationship we used to have with him. At that point, it's like, Oh, we need to be right next to him, but we've drifted so far, it's now going to take some work to get back connected. So we're going to keep reading here. That's how he opens up chapter 2. But here in chapter 2, verse 9, we're going to skip down to, 
he begins to talk really deeply a, uh, a continuation of the truth he presented in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 9, he says, What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Verse 10, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. I want to highlight here just a second. Jesus, perfect leader through suffering. You want to be a leader? You got to go through some suffering. Verse 11. So now Jesus and the ones, I like how our pastor, who's our leader, he goes, that's good. It's like, he's, yeah, he's like, yeah, it's... Verse 11. So now Jesus and the one he makes holy. That's us. The one he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Verse 13. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Here's where we get into this whole idea of flesh and blood, all right? So Hebrews chapter 1 is all about Jesus. Like it's saying, hey, this whole thing is about Jesus. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses, all right? Jesus is, is better than all those. He's better than your forefathers. He's better than your ancestors, better than the angels. It, it's all about him. But chapter 2 here is all about what's called the incarnation. The incarnation is when the divine Jesus took on human form and became flesh. So verse 14 is where he talks about it. He says, because God's children, that's us, are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Verse 16. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. You see kind of the story here unfolding. Jesus had to become a human. He had to be flesh and blood so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest, so he could be in every respect like us because it took a human to die for humans. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Verse 18. This is the last verse we're reading. If you think we're reading too much scripture, we're almost done. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. Since Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing. Other versions say tempting, all right? Tempting, testing. Since he's gone through these things, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Because he went through the things that we experienced, because he experienced life as a human, he can identify us, identify with us as humans. So Hebrews 1, all about 
Jesus' divinity, all about his perfection. That he was with God in the beginning, all right? He was perfect in every way. And then verse, chapter 2 here is all about how he became flesh and blood. It's called the incarnation. And then I want us to talk a little bit about the, the, just the beauty and the, uh, the tension of the incarnation. See, Jesus left perfection. Before he became human, he was perfect in every way. And that just doesn't mean he didn't sin, right? And oftentimes, we, you know, Jesus was the perfect human. So we talk about he, how when he came to earth, he didn't sin at all. He was the perfect human. But I want you to think of all the things that are wrong with you. Jesus didn't experience any of those when he was in heaven before he became human, right? That shoulder that hurts after playing baseball in high school, Jesus didn't have that when he was in heaven. He didn't have those pains. He didn't have any of that. He was perfect in every way. And he left the strength and power of his eternal nature to put on a mortal form. This weak, frail form of humanity. Now, yes, humans can be strong. We we think that we're strong. But uh, if you still think that you're strong in every way, you're just not old enough yet. A few years back, we, were, we had started a church in California, and we were pastoring the church. And every Sunday, we did set up and tear down, meaning we didn't have a building. We met at an elementary school, and we had all these speakers and TV screens and sound boards that we would go and get out of the closet, and we'd walk, like, all across uh, the whole school into the auditorium, and we'd pick them up, and we'd set up everything, you know. And uh, th- we had all these volunteers there to help us. It was a wonderful, amazing group of people that would help us set up. And a few of the guys, uh, we were in a big military community that we were at in, in, in California, right next to Camp Pendleton, a Marine base. So a lot of our church was full of, of Marines uh, and Navy personnel, you know, officers and enlisted, all that. It was a great community of people. But all those guys, like, they're in shape. And a lot of them are young. And a lot of them are big. So doing setup teardown with them was much easier uh, than some other places would have been, you know, and they're just like setting up. But, you know, me being the pastor and being like the leader of this community, I also wanted to make sure I provided my fair share uh, of, of the job. So there were times where like we had these huge subwoofers that we had to get up from the ground onto the stage. And usually like two or three of us would grab it and lift it. Well, one Sunday morning, I saw a couple of the military guys. Uh, they didn't need two of them. They just picked it up by themselves and on the stage. And I was like, well, they can do it. I can do it. Uh, they weren't there the next week and I did it and it was really painful and it hurt for a very, very long time. And when I mean a very long time, I mean like a years long, uh, like constant pain in my back. I had to go to the doctor, had to go to physical therapy, all kinds of things because, uh, you know, I wanted to prove that I was just as strong, but you know what? I did it. Yeah, I did it the one time, but I remember, you know, all that had to go through physical therapy. My back hurt. It was really, I mean, it was difficult here to be honest. It was really, really, it was just, it was crazy. And I had this moment of like, I'm never going to heal. My back's going to hurt the rest of my life. Uh, thankfully I through physical therapy and workouts and stretches and all this stuff. Like I came to the point where my back didn't hurt 24 seven. And then I finally got to the point where like, okay, it doesn't hurt hardly at all unless I do something dumb. Uh, and as long as I take care of it, it, it doesn't hurt. And then there was this time where I, I was at a restaurant and I, ate something and went down the wrong pipe and I started choking and just started coughing, you know, one of those moments. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I coughed and now my back is going to hurt for weeks. This, this human form is frail. 
Like, it's weak. We played a board game the other night in our, with our small group. And in this board game, yes, you know what's coming, Brooke. In this board game, uh, we're playing, and it's like basically, you know, there's a secret word, and the person who is it doesn't know what the word is, and everyone else has to give them clues of what the word is. Uh, so I don't know what the word is, but my friends, my so-called friends, they, the first word they give, like the clue word is, is shiny. And then two people just wrote my name. They wrote Nathan, Nate. And I was like, what? I have no idea what this word is. They're like, it's bald. Thank you. Appreciate that. I didn't like that one. Uh, here's the thing. This, this form that we live in, it's not going to last forever. It's just not. Thankfully, we're going to enter into eternity one day and we're not going to deal with all those pains. We're not going to deal with all that stuff with getting older, you know, and all those things. Uh, I went to the doctor a, a while back. Man, I'm just talking about all kinds of stuff wrong with me. And uh, my knees started hurting. And he looked at him and he was like, yeah, your knees are messed up. I was like, how did that happen? And he goes, did you play sports in high school? I was like, yeah, my whole life. And he's like, starts naming, did you play this? It's like, yeah, I played those. He goes, yeah, it just is what it is. I'm like, no, fix it, you know? Like, you got to do something. He's like, no, there's no way. Like, there's just no more cartilage. It's just not really there. So it's not going to be good. I was like, okay, this is awesome. But one day that's going to be healed and taken care of. Jesus left the perfection to take on this form. Right? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he leave the perfection, the power and strength that he possessed in heaven to come down to earth? Why did he do it? People. He did it for us. I think sometimes as believers, we can, we can think about what Jesus did, and we've heard it so many times that we just kind of think, yeah, Jesus did it for all humanity, which is true. But we forget that he did it specifically and personally for you, for me. He left heaven. He left perfection. He left complete union with the Father to come down to earth so that he could give his life for us. So Jesus came in the flesh and blood. Why did Jesus do this? The first thing, number one, if you're taking notes or writing things down, you can write this down. See, Jesus, he needed to be human to set humans free. He needed to be human to set humans free. We read it a moment ago, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. As divine, eternal God, he could not die. Jesus, in his eternal, divine form, couldn't die. He couldn't give up his life. Because of our sin and our mistakes and all the wrong things that we've done, there needed to be a sacrifice of death to, to wipe away all those mistakes, okay? So it's our sin. Because of our sin, there needed to be a sacrifice. There needed to be a death taking place. Jesus couldn't die in his eternal form, so he had to become human so that he could die and pay the price for us. It was us. We, we, we messed it up. We're the ones that messed it up, so Jesus had to take on this form. He had to become a human and then live a perfect human existence while he was here so he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And because of all this, we don't need to fear death. 
See, as believers, we have something that people who aren't believers don't have. We have the hope for eternal life. That this life is, is not all. It's not it. It's not when we die, it's not the end. On the past two years, I've lost both of my grandfathers. They've both passed. Uh, and I was blessed to live, you know, until my late 30s with both my grandfathers still alive. But uh, they've both passed. And I've been to lots of funerals over the years for different people. My grandfather's funerals were definitely uh, the most emotional for me because they were the people that uh, I was closest to that had passed. And I still miss my grandfathers, both of them. But I know I'm going to get to see them again one day. I'm going to get to see them again. And maybe me and Papaw will watch some gun smoke together in heaven. I don't know. But that's what we did. Maybe me and Granddaddy will play some golf because that's what we did with Granddaddy. I don't know. But one day I'm going to get to see them again. Not only am I going to get to see them again, but I don't have to be afraid of dying. So he says, we don't have to live our lives as slaves to the fear of death. We don't have to be afraid of what's coming because we know there is eternal life because of Jesus. Number two, why did Jesus come in the flesh? Not only, number one, did he need to be human to set humans free, but number two, he came, and because he became in the flesh, he can identify with our frailty and our weakness. See, Jesus can identify with our frailty and our weakness. Not only physical, but emotional, mental, spiritual. Verse 17, we read it a moment ago. It was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. See, Jesus stands as the mediator between us and the Father. The mediator is the person in between us that pleads our case. Okay, so Jesus stands in between us and the Father, and he constantly pleads our case. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the high priest is, uh, Jesus is the true high priest and the eternal high priest. But in the Old Testament, we see kind of the way the Israelite people were set up was a shadow, or was a picture of what Jesus does for us now. The Israelite people, they would come to the high priest, and they'd come to the priest, and they would bring an animal, and the, the animal would be killed, and the blood would run over the altar, and that blood of that animal would cover that family's sins for one year. And then once year, the high priest would take kind of all the sins of the people, go into the Holy of Holies before God with the Ark of the Covenant there, and he would plead the case of the people, and that would cover their sins for one year. Okay? So that's what the high priest does. The high priest stands between the people and the Father to plead the case of that we should be made right. So Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful because he understands what we go through. He understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. So he's merciful to our condition. All right, we can keep reading. Uh, Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Verse 18. So he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. Whenever we're going through hardship, Jesus can help us. He knows what it feels like to suffer. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. If we think about him being whipped, if we think about him being nailed to a cross, he knows what it means to suffer physically. But there's this moment where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to go and die. 
And he's in such emotional agony that as he prays, the capillaries in his sweat glands begin to burst and he sweat drops of blood. He was in so much internal turmoil, internal suffering, that there was a physical manifestation of his internal suffering. So not only does he know what it means to suffer physically, he knows what emotional and internal suffering looks like. There's another moment where he's hanging on the cross and he cries out to the, to the Father. He says, why, my God, have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? It's this moment of, of transparency and clarity where the, where the son knows that him and the father are one, but he's in such agony, such pain, that he says, why do we have to do that? Why are we going through this? What is happening here? And at that moment, what we know theologically is that Jesus took on the sins of all of humanity. And because he took on our sins as he was on that cross about to die, there is a separation between him and his father. The separation he experienced between him and the father was much greater than any physical suffering he could experience in life. When we enter into eternity in heaven, it's going to be this, this, this eternal uh, bliss and this eternal peace. And the reason why we experience this is because we will be connected to the father the way the son has always been connected to the father, except for in this one moment. When he's separated from the father, see Jesus, he went through suffering. He experienced tempting and testing so he can help us when we're tested, when we're tempted. You know, I have a lot of good friends here, uh, you know, a lot of good friends across the country. We've, we've lived in different places, have a lot of good friends. But uh, about five years ago, I met someone here. Uh, in Alabama that I had an instant connection with that I hadn't experienced with anyone yet in my lifetime. I met someone else who had the same disease that I have. I have type 1 diabetes, and I live. I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic. been this way for about 20 years now going on, and I had never to that point met someone else who is an insulin-dependent type 1 diabetic. And when I met this person, we began to have a conversation that no one else can, you can't, you can't have a conversation with anyone else. It doesn't matter how many times, like I express frustration to my wife and I know she feels for me and she's empathetic towards some of the frustration I experience as a type one diabetic, but she doesn't really get it because she's not one and she won't. So when I met someone who is one and instantly just got it, it's like, yeah, you too. Sometimes you just wake up in the morning and your blood sugar's high and you have no idea why, because everything you ate the night before is the same thing you'd eaten in other times. You took the same amount of medicine as always, but you wake up and then all day long, you're going to be mad trying to get your blood sugar down all day long. And you don't know what's going on. I was like, yeah, I've experienced that all the time too. And I was like, thank you. Someone understands. We've had all kinds of conversations. We talk about Novolog and Humalog and Lantus and Basilglar. And you're like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, you don't know either. And thankfully, hopefully you never have to know. But there's this instant connection because we share a common suffering. Jesus shared our suffering. And because he became flesh and blood, when we cry out, we're like, Jesus, I'm so frustrated. I'm angry. I'm, I'm annoyed. Jesus is like, yeah, I've been there. Like, have you really? You didn't have diabetes. You know, and Jesus is like, yeah, I had some disciples, like, betray me, send me to death. Like, okay, yeah, that's worse. That's worse. 
he is able to help us when we're tested because he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be human. That alone sometimes just blows my mind. That my perfect divine Savior knows what it's like to be human. He did this. He became human so he could identify with our frailty and our weakness. Number three, Jesus became flesh. When he became flesh, he made us brothers and sisters with the same father. He made us brothers and sisters with the same father. Verse 11. So now Jesus and the one he makes holy, the ones he makes holy, that's us, have the same father. That's why he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I'll praise you among the assembled people. And then we skip down to verse 17. It says, therefore, it was necessary for him, for Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, to be made human like us, to be, have flesh and blood, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. So we're not slaves or servants. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus. You know, I have, I have four kids, and they will never not be my kids. They will always be my kids. And I love them so much. And I joke about, you know, Griffin talking all the time, but I wouldn't change it at all. I love my kids. And sometimes they do bad things. They mess up. They make mistakes. And I don't love them any less when they make mistakes. I get mad at them. I'll get frustrated, but I don't love them any less. Now, if I were to lose one of my kids, I would do whatever I had to do to find them. If I was ever, let's say, in a science center in Portland, Oregon, just as an example, and we couldn't find a kid, that was ours. It's just a random, you know, odd place. Not specific at all. But we would do whatever we could to find that kid that walked off. You know, probably like the most terrifying 20 seconds of our life. And it wasn't very long. But that moment of like, we don't know where that child is. It's a moment of panic. See, so many times when we look at you know, Jesus coming to earth and we look at Christianity and coming to church, I think we just have the wrong idea of why this whole thing took place. There's an author named Hugh Halter, and I think he, he sums it up really well. He says, Christians often make it sound like Jesus came only to die for sin and then make converts, grow a religion called Christianity, and then make more converts. But listen to this. God never wanted converts, church attenders, prisoners, or parishioners. He just wanted his family back. He, he just wanted his family back. See, God is a nostalgic God. He wants things back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the world where there was perfect harmony and, and, and communion with one another and with him. He wants his family back. Jesus came to earth, took on this frail form, became flesh and blood 
so that the father could get his family back. We could be made brothers and sisters with God. In John chapter 17, the prayer that Jesus prays called the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays some very unique and interesting things. Jesus doesn't pray to the father. I pray that, you know, there are massive churches and there are great evangelism efforts and that there are missionaries who travel across the world. He doesn't pray for any of those things. What does he pray? He says, I pray that they are one the way you and I are one. And he prays that we would be one with him the way that he is one with the Father and the Father would be one with us the way that, he and, that they are one. He's praying for his family to get back together. We pray that we, he prays that we will have perfect unity and harmony with one another, with him, with the Father and the Son. He says, I, I want my family back. See, the, the incarnational way of life isn't about conversion to a religion. It's about adoption into a family. It's about adoption. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, You're, we're grafted in. We're adopted. We become sons and daughters of the king. If the worship team could join me on the stage, we're going to take communion here in just a minute. Uh, you should have a communion cup under your chair or under the chair in front of you. I'm going to need to ask a favor. Can someone bring me one? Because I forgot to grab one. An extra one. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's a pro-pastor move right there. Don't bring the communion up with you. So in a minute, we're going to take communion. And just how this is going to work, uh, I'm about to tell you a story. After the story, we're going to enter into communion. There is a wafer on the top of your Lunchable, and then there's juice inside the Lunchable. I'm going to talk about the wafer, and we're going to take it out. We're going to hold it together. I'm going to talk about it. Then I'm going to pray over it. It's the bread. I'm going to pray over it. Then after I pray, we'll take it together. Then I'm going to talk about the juice, talk about the cup, what that means. I'm going to pray over it, and then we'll take it together. Okay, so we'll do that in just a minute. But before we get there, 11 years ago, somewhere in the fall, I don't remember if it was October, November, sometime around then, 11 years ago, Brooke and I are living in Colorado at the time. We have three kids at the time. Uh, Our son, who's 11, about to turn 12, uh, he's right around one-ish, and he, uh, his name is Nolan. He's over there. He's a pretty cool kid. I asked him if I could use his name. He said, yes, as long as I don't embarrass him too much. And I was like, well, you said yes. So we're going with that. Uh, no, it's not an embarrassing story, but he, he was about one and Nolan, he had this interesting thing he would do when he got angry or hurt or whatever before he would cry. Like he would close his eyes and he would act, look like he's crying. Like and then sound would come out. And there was like this little pause. Like I, we didn't understand why. It was kind of biz- it was funny, you know, but kind of bizarre at the same time. And there's this one um, Friday evening, we're eating dinner around the table, and he had taken a nap and just woken up from his nap. And Brooke had made I think it was chili. I'm pretty sure uh, she had made chili. And he's sitting in his high chair at the dinner table, and we're eating. And he doesn't want to eat his chili. Well, that couldn't have been chili for him. He was 
like not one, whatever. He didn't want to eat his food. And it was like, you know, we're telling him, you have to eat your food, you have to eat your food. He's like, no, I don't want to, or something, whatever one-year-olds say. He's speaking full sentences before he's one, yeah. He was like telling us paragraphs, like, I don't want to, Father. Can I have something else to consume? No. Uh, But he didn't want to eat it, and we're like, no, you have to eat. And so he was just not, like, physically all there. He was still kind of waking up. And so then he goes to, like, cry and and throw a fit, and he does this, this thing where he... You know, he takes, he closes his eyes, he clenches, and he's silent. But the scream never comes. And all of a sudden, this tense, you know, uh, face that looks like he's in agony, no sounds coming out. And all of a sudden, his, his eyes roll back into his head, and he just turns purple, and he stops breathing. And in that moment my brain just kicks into like ultra calm. Just, we got it. Something's going on. We need to take care of it. We need to figure it out. Brooke experiences the emotions, the emotions right then and there. Like, you know, what's happening, what's going on. I pick him up out of his high chair and he's not breathing and I'm holding him. And like, Hey, call 911 right now. We got to call the ambulance. We got to get here. And uh, Maddie and Ethan are there. And like, everyone's kind of not knowing what to do as he starts to just turn colors and I'm holding him and I'm like, Brooke, you got to get on 911. So she calls, she talks to 911 and they're on their way and, and I'm holding him and I come back over and I, and I lay him on the ground. And when I lay him on the ground, he just begins to shake. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe this is a seizure of some short, sort. Like, I don't know what's going on. He's just, he's just shaking at this point. I don't, he hasn't breathed yet. And after he stops shaking, he kind of just takes a breath. His eyes are closed and he's still there, but he just, he, he takes a breath. And I just was like, Whew, he's breathing. Ambulance comes. The rest is kind of a whirlwind. We called a, a young woman who was living with us, who worked at our church at the time. And we're like, hey, you know, come take care of the kids. We're going to set up this and go there. And the, the paramedics come and they take him. And then we determine Brooke is going to ride in the ambulance. And then I'm going to follow behind the ambulance to the hospital. At this point, all I know is that he was breathing, but he hasn't really woken up yet, hasn't opened his eyes. They take him. They go off in the ambulance. I get in the car and I'm following and I call my dad. I call our pastor and I was like, just start praying. No one wasn't breathing. I don't know if he's unconscious. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if he had a seizure, but just start praying as we're going to the hospital. And I mean, Brooke's in the ambulance and uh, I can't really call her. I don't know what's going on. So they get to the hospital a few minutes before I do because I got the kids all set up with Luna and everything. And then I just remember walking into the room that no one was in. I ask him, hey, my son's here. I walk in. And there seems to be like 20 people in this room. I don't know why there's so many people. The paramedics are there. There's doctors. There's nurses. They're all there. And I just kind of walk into this scene and no one is on the hospital bed and they're all gathered around. And at this point, Like, I haven't experienced any emotion whatsoever. I'm just figuring out, solving a problem, you know, making sure he gets where he needs to be. And then this woman in the room looks at me and she says, are you dad? And I said, yes, I'm dad. And she just says, he's going to be fine. He's okay. And all the emotions hit me at once. And I just fall into this chair and begin to sob. And she's like, it's okay. Like, he's going to be okay. 
I was like, it's the first, I didn't know if he was alive. I didn't know what was going on. When she said, he's going to be okay. It was like, oh, okay. Turns out nothing was majorly wrong or anything. He just held his breath too long. Caused himself to pass out. And the doctor told us like, now some kids, they learn they can do this. And so they'll do it and try to control the situation. So don't draw attention if he ever does this again, you know, type of thing. So thankfully, he never did it again. And now he's 11, so don't even try. Like, it's not even. But the, um, I remember the overwhelming moment where all that hit me at once. And I can't even imagine what our heavenly father experienced when he watched his son being beaten with a whip. When he watched his son who had been eternally with him and intimately connected, completely united with him for eternity up until this point. I can't even imagine as he watched his son in flesh and in (laughs) spill his blood and die on that cross. I can't even imagine the emotions he was going through. As a father seeing my son, I, I, I feel like I have a little bit more of an understanding, but I don't have a complete understanding of what that's like. But when I think the father and the son, they willingly endured that for me, makes me pretty grateful. I think sometimes we can take communion and it can just be a ritual we go through because Jesus said we're supposed to do it, so we do it. But this morning, I I want us to just really contemplate the suffering that Jesus went through so that we could be set free so that he could identify with our weakness and so that we could be a part of the family of God forever. The bread here on the top, you can go ahead and take that out and hold it. Jesus was with his disciples before he died on the cross. He knew what was coming. He took a piece of bread and he passed it out. He broke it and he passed it out. And he says, take this. This is my body that's broken for you. Jesus' body hadn't been broken yet. But he said, take this bread. It's my body. And it's about to be broken for you. Just take it and eat it. And remember the suffering I went through for you. So that's why we do this as a church family. As we come together and we remember the physical suffering Jesus went through in his body so that we don't have to experience physical suffering because of our sin. As we hold this bread, Jesus, we say thank you for your body. We say thank you for allowing yourself to be broken for us. We thank you for the 39 lashes you took on your back. We thank you for the nails 
that you allowed to be placed into your hands and the nail that was placed into your feet for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take the bread together. And you can open the cup portion. After the bread, Jesus passed out the cup and he says, this represents my blood. The bread represents my flesh. The cup represents my blood that was spilled out for you. See, because of our sin, because of our mistakes, there needed to be a payment in blood so that we could be free. And Jesus says, my blood is going to be that payment and it's going to cover all of our sins for eternity. And for eternity, we will be made righteous. We are made holy because of this blood. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was spilled out for us. We thank you that your blood covers our sins for eternity, that your sacrifice on that cross, it was a one-time deal. It only had to happen once because your blood in its perfection, in its uh, divine and human simultaneous nature covers our sins forever. So this morning we say thank you for your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. We can take the cup together.